This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode is my co-host, sometime co-host. Used to be a lot. It's been some time since we've had you on the show. The Deputy Editor-in-Chief, Bill Bray. Hello, Bill. Hello. Good afternoon, Ward. So you are fresh from teaching the next generation of naval leadership ethics. I am, yes. My part-time gig here. Your part-time gig. Talk to us about the ethics course real quick. What's that all about? Well, the uh, it's the official title is uh, Ethics and Moral Reasoning for the Naval Leader. It is a two, one of two congressionally mandated courses at all the service academies. It's been in place for approximately 25 years uh, since the uh, infamous electrical engineering cheating scandal at the Naval Academy in 1994. Um, the Naval Academy and the Coast Guard Academy teach it to sophomores, youngsters, we call them here, and uh, the West Point and Air Force teaches them as, teaches the same course as seniors. So it's just a different approach. Um, I find it very interesting. Uh, it, it, the Academy has five philosophers on the staff that uh, they teach the theory on Mondays, and the uh, military officer, or in my case, or in many cases, the external adjuncts or retired military officers, uh, teach the practice, so case studies, that sort of thing. So it's a mashup of, of classic philosophy and military case studies. Yes, in, in, in a sequence of moral perception, moral deliberation, character, and just war theory. Those are the three major blocks. Oh, Four yes. major blocks, sorry. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a cool course. I, I taught it when I was here. Um, we were just talking about when I was on the faculty, 98-02. As you said, it was created in the wake of some bad times, the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, there was some sense that the moral bearing wasn't where they thought it should be, right? So they brought Admiral Larson back for his second tour of soup and some rock stars, Pat Walsh, later Pacific Fleet, and other folks modeled on the West Point plan, uh, the way way that West Point does it. But uh, cool program and uh, is fundamental now. Like you said, congressionally mandated. A lot of power yes, in that in that statement. So, let's get right to our guests. Yes, uh, Captain uh, John Cordell, a U.S. Navy retired, um, has authored a article in our July issue of Proceedings. Uh, the title of the article is "They Are Not Quote Broken Shower Shoes Unquote." Um, it quite it garnished quite a bit of commentary online and, and quite a bit of attention. Uh, the subject is uh, that when commanding officers are uh, do not complete their tour for uh, an untoward reason. Um, they are not afforded the support uh, that they should be afforded, um, and the Navy doesn't uh, use their experiences um, for the betterment of the force. 
So, John, tee, tee it up for us. What what caused you to write this article and, and, and give us the 30,000-foot uh, overview, and then we'll get into the specifics. That's, a, that's obviously a, a, a sort of a complex question because uh, you know, I had command twice. I had some close calls myself. I uh, was chief of staff at Surfland and watched a few cases of folks that sort of fell uh, short and, uh, and had to deal with it. And then um, as I've gotten a little more gray hair, I've watched some former shipmates, mentor, folks that I've either been friends with or mentors to, um, also end up uh, in that in that path, um, including uh, someone that I invited, uh, asked you to invite today, uh, Dennis Volpe, who's, who's uh, written about it and uh, has some great uh, insights along the way. So I had this article kind of on my computer for a long time. Uh, then came uh, the Brett Crozier relief. Uh, then came a few other commanding officers that I knew personally, and uh, and I sort of started to, to form a trend, um, wrote a lot about the comprehensive review and those two commanding officers, and, uh, and I, saw about, I saw three things. I saw um, a relief process that seemed a little bit uneven sometimes, uh, depending very much on the individuals involved. Um, secondly, I saw uh, officers that really saw, and enlisted folks, uh, and there's at least a couple of command master chiefs in the, in the group um, that, I, that I met. Um, who really saw their purpose taken away. I mean, when people ask me, what did you do? I usually answer, well, I commanded Oscar Austin in San Jacinto while I was in the Navy. And, uh, you know, that becomes kind of central to who I am. You take that away from me, and, and now now what, right? Um, and then how they felt afterwards was a piece of that. And then the final piece is um, I'm a very much a proponent of lessons learned. And I think that our process often takes the big lessons and sort of hides them from view with the way that we treat the results of these boards um, and those events and, uh, and the opportunity there to, to leverage those officers. Um, and so it all culminated with, uh, with, with submitting the article that, uh, that came out and certainly has led to some interesting discussions. But that's kind of the, that's a long road to get there. But, uh, you know, it was about, about three years in the making, I think. So, John, why don't you introduce Dennis, your co-author, and, and tell us why you thought he'd be appropriate for this subject. Um, well, I actually met Dennis uh, sort of vicariously through his book um, when I was uh, working on some transition type things and, and mentoring some folks. And uh, I'll let him tell you a little bit about it. But but uh, it, it led to me learning more about his story, signing up for, uh, for a couple of uh, in-person or, or Zoom calls where uh, I really saw you know, some good insights to the kind of things that I had been writing about. Um, and I thought it'd be great to kind of add that personal level to this discussion. So, Dennis, I'll turn it over to you. No, thanks, John. I, I appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate uh, being on the podcast. Uh, and uh, what did I write about? Uh, well, my book's called Transition on Purpose. And uh, it talks about my career uh, from start, start to finish uh, and how you can go from being on top of your game, being on top of the world, uh, to then, you know, being in the loneliest valley that you can be personally and professionally because of what happens. And then you got to decide what are you going to do about it? You know, to, uh, to echo what, what John talked about, you know, when you spend a lifetime, arguably, in service to the nation, that becomes part of you and it becomes part of your identity. And so the process needs to acknowledge that uh, and provide the opportunity for these men and women to really understand themselves, understand what matters to them and what they want to do about it. Because it's, it takes resilience 
to not only deal with the process, but also to keep moving in a positive direction. So Dennis, give us the short version of your circumstance, just to set the scene for the listeners. So I had command of uh, USS Taylor uh, in 2014, and we were supporting the 2014 uh, Sochi Olympics. So we were off the coast of uh, Sochi, Russia, providing uh, maritime security operations uh, in support of national tasking. And um, so everything you're doing is being briefed to the highest levels of, you know, the Navy and uh, the civilian chain of command. So when you think about it from, you know, a personal and professional perspective, you're, you're literally on top of the world. You're a ship captain. You're doing good things. You're doing purposeful work. Uh, and then you sail across the Black Sea. Uh, you enter you know, Samson Harbor. Uh, and uh, because of a lot of uh, different things that, that happen, you end up running aground and uh, damaging your propeller and being deemed non-mission capable uh, during a time of heightened uh, tensions in the Black Sea. Obviously had an investigation, got relieved of command, uh, and rightly so, because when you're a commanding officer, you are, as everybody here knows, responsible and accountable uh, for what you do, for what your crew does, and what they don't do. And uh, But then that started almost a 24-month process of show cause for retention, uh, retirement grade determination stuff uh, that like I said, almost took two years to finish. Uh, so you're in limbo for that that amount of time, uh, particularly when that stuff happens and someone says to you, hey, I know you as an officer. I know you as a person, but I'm going to show cause for retention because you had a grounding. Dennis, how many years of service uh, had you had before 2014? Uh, 18 so, so, Dennis, you're speaking to the sort of inherent punitive tone, tenor to the process, um, despite what the facts may dictate, right? I mean, it's just, it, it just, it, it, it's inherently in a binary world. When these things happen, you're almost treated like a criminal for, from that point forward. You, like you said, you're in limbo when. You know, the, the initial investigation could reveal that there was no malice. There was, you know, obviously, as you have said, you own the responsibility as CEO of the ship. But there's something about the process. And this is to John's title. They're not broken shower shoes. Right. So is there something we can do to repair that tenor? Because in the process and I, I'm reminded of, you know, Admiral Branch during the Fat Leonard situation, you know, very high visibility position, ultimately found not guilty of anything, but the clock had run out and certainly his professional reputation was sullied by the mere accusation, right? So this is a higher vis form of what you're talking about, but it's still kind of what you guys are talking about. So uh, Dennis, put a, put a finer point on, on what your feelings were and how you think we might be able to uh, do this better. You know, John talked about it. Uh, there, there are absolutely lessons learned uh, for me personally, for me professionally, uh, that were never sought after uh, by by the organization. Uh, and I get it; it makes sense. Uh, they want to move on, but uh, I think there's commanding officers out there 
uh, or future commanding officers out there that could get perspective from someone who had to deal with something that they never thought they would have to deal with ever. And um, to your point, you know, when a, when a sh- at least in my opinion, when, when a commanding officer um, has a bad day at sea, you get thrown into the same bucket as those that have questionable morals, questionable integrity, and everything else. So understanding that, to your point, the tenor of, hey, this person had a bad day at sea versus this person had unethical conduct and has questionable character, putting all of them in the same bucket, you're absolutely going to jar their sense of identity and their sense of self. On that point, uh, to prepare for the podcast, I went and pulled the uh, 2010 Navy IG report on detachments for cause. I know it's a little dated now, and it certainly happened well before your time in command. Uh, but there was a, there were several IGs, actually, to look at the Navy's uh, detachment for cause numbers. Um, and the, for the listeners, the long and short of it is about 1% of Navy commanding officers get detached for cause a year. So a pretty small number. That it varies a little bit year to year, but it's, that's consistently over it. Most of those, as Dennis just uh, referred to, most of them are for personal misconduct. Um, a few are for incidents, as in the case of Dennis's uh, unfortunate incident on the Taylor. And then there's a smaller subset that are... Uh, loss of confidence, and John Cordell talks about that in the article a little bit. You know, just the the superior uh, in the chain loses confidence in the CO's ability to command and and makes decisions. That is what happened, in fact, to uh, Captain Crozier. So that's just some context and some data for the listeners. So John, go ahead and pick it up with what your article talks about against what Dennis was teeing up in terms of his circumstance. First of all. Uh, people get to command uh, through a very rigorous process, right? I mean, you think about the time invested in the training, evaluation, selection boards, uh, post-CR, there are multiple seamanship, go-no-go tests that people have to take. So we invest an incredible amount of effort uh, and rigor in the community in in selecting individuals for this uh, assignment. Uh, The other piece of it is not everybody wants to be a CEO. I mean, you're, you're striving for something that's above and beyond uh, true, in the SWOL community, it's kind of a must-do if you want to retire uh, at the next pay grade. But, uh, you know, there, there's some folks that that's not what they choose to do. And then so you've already set yourself apart by your own volunteering for this process. And the Navy has put their stamp of approval on you with a great deal of rigor. So um, so part of it is when you get to the point where you've made a mistake is, uh, you know, who decides where that bar is, whether it's a, a seamanship event or a moral or ethical, uh, you know, I had my, some of my close calls were uh, uh, were seamanship. I, I hit a buoy. I dragged a uh, uh, tack, towed array sonar on the bottom, uh, both of which uh, resulted in emails of saying, "Hey, isn't that the same as a collision or a grounding?" And thus uh, warranting you know this officer's relief. And both times, uh, my chain of command kind of stepped up and said, "Hey, he was doing what we told him to. He was being an aggressive ship driver, and uh, and we're not going to go there." But it could have gone out differently if I had different people in charge of me at the time and that was one per command tour so at the end of the day um and you know i should bring in uh, a mention of dr michael young uh, into this discussion his book crimes of command kind of goes deep into this but uh you know the idea that for both the seamanship items and the uh uh perhaps the the more less 
uh, you know, more personal type things. Maybe there's a place for uh, either a board of inquiry or some kind of a of a more formal process where you have an investigation, a recommendation um, to folks who have looked at this broad spectrum of, of, of you know, potential failures and decide where that bar is. So there's a process piece of this that I thought might be improved if the process was a little less individualized, a little more standardized. Uh, one example, I, I performed a USS Porter investigation uh, when I was on active duty. Um, I had no training whatsoever. I got I got a, 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 you know, a Jagman, uh, you know, primer from the Jag, and I was on a plane. Um, there are courses where the Navy teaches you, the Coast Guard, NTSB, how to do an investigation. Um, how to ask the right questions, how to interview people. So that could be part of our process um, so that we took some of that subjectivity out. And then at the end of the day, that makes a recommendation, not necessarily just to the immediate superior in command, uh, but also to perhaps a more detached group that could say, yes, uh, this officer or this, this individual has potential for continued service in command, uh, and let's go learn from it. You know, I, I use a quote in the article from a British friend of mine who had a collision and uh, and basically, the Sea Lord wrote him a letter that said, you became a better naval officer today because what you learned is going to make you better and you're going to share it and make other people better. So uh, so that that was kind of the, the leading up. And then, as Dennis said, the, the legal uh, discussion uh, tends to go on. That process tends to go on for six months to two years, during which time this, this person is in limbo the whole time. Um, and maybe there needs to be a little more precise dividing point as to, hey, which group of folks is this in? Is this in someone who um, is, who we really want to, to, to take away everything that they've accomplished up to this date uh, because of one event? Or is this someone where we don't need to go down that road, the show cause? Um, you know, I'm not saying what's right or wrong, but at least I'm, I'm looking at Dennis as, as an example of maybe that wasn't the right path to take for that situation. So remind the audience what the Porter incident was. Um, this was a collision with a, a tanker over in Fifth Fleet in 2012, um, which did not result in any deaths, but, uh, but resulted in you know, taking the ship offline, and the commanding officer was eventually relieved. So when you say, which I love that Sea Lord quote, you became a better naval officer today, that's not exactly the way we look at it, right? And it's the old saw about, hey, you know Nimitz ran a ship aground, dot, dot, dot. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say to somebody in the wake of a grounding or some other misstep, you became a better naval officer today. But I love that because we all know that's true. Experience is the best teacher and so forth and so on. And I think this is Dennis's motivation for his book. As a function of that one bad day at sea, there's a lot of wisdom to pass on and you're not done sort of leading. You know, if you're treated like damaged goods for the balance of whatever's left of your career, that that doesn't help the big picture to the degree it could. And, and you think about other professions, right? This is what I thought about when I was on the SSG and others when we were talking about things like this and this zero defect environment that Navy uh, seems to live in today, uh, very unforgiving. But surgeons make mistakes, honest mistakes. They have insurance for it. Uh, lawyers lose cases. Uh, you know, other professions seem to me more forgiving for honest mistakes. We're not talking about, you know, bad personal conduct or, you know, willful malice. negligence, malice or anything like that. We're talking about honest mistakes in a very high tense, 
pressure-packed environment, a uh, very difficult environment. You feel, John, that the Navy's – and we talk about this in the Navy, but nothing seems to change. Do you see any any change on the horizon on giving giving commanding officers a, you know, a second chance in a case like Dennis's? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I mean, I do know, for instance, um, after the comprehensive review, the, the surface Navy came out and sort of uh, – uh, took a page from the aviation world um, that I'm sure you all are familiar with, um, where we have uh, there's there's near misses, there's critiques where you come out and say, hey, um, I did something wrong, and this is what could have happened if I hadn't had watch team backup. And so um, culturally, I think there's been some motion in that direction. Uh, I still think there's some some ways to go there about sharing our mistakes. Um, and uh, so I don't know. I mean, it's somewhat it's a little bit personality driven, I would say. Um, but I think what you pointed out statistically, it hasn't changed all that much. So I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not trying to make a judgment call over at this point, you know, what individual should or should not have been relieved for, for what did or didn't happen, but, uh, just advocating for a little more, uh, process driven approach, uh, along the way, if that makes sense. Dennis. Yeah. So I think from my perspective, should I have been relieved of command? 100%. Absolutely. I was accountable, responsible for what happened and didn't happen that day. I think to your point, to what we've discussed, looking at it holistically to say, you know what? This guy was a ship handler of the year. This gal was a Navy and Marine Corps uh, you know, leadership award winner. This person was an Arleigh Burke award winner. And oh, you know what? Now they're in command and they have an exemplary record. And then they had one day, one bad day at sea. So why take them through that show cause for retention process? Right. Retain them in the Navy when, in my case, you know, your name is actually inscribed on the Navy Memorial in D.C.? Does that make sense? But, I mean, is this codified in law? What is the answer to the why? I don't think there is one. No, okay. So it's not. So we're saying, to our understanding, it's not codified in law. It's not something that axiomatically has to happen as a function of regulations or whatever. It's just something that is, I don't know, tradition or are these the, the pressures of the chain of command? And I, my mind goes to the summer of 2017 and the two collisions at sea, which, John, you spoke to in the wake of at um, Defense Forum Washington. Um, it was still very fresh and... and uh, you know, you and who are the other two guys on the stage with you there? It was a great panel. Kevin Iyer. Um, yeah, Kevin Iyer and, and, and some yeah. somebody else was up there. And, and, I and this is brand new. In fact, uh, I don't even think the, the, the justice had been, or the punishments, not the justice, but the punishments had been meted out, right? So affected right. were the ship boss, the, the Pacific Fleet commander, and 7th Fleet, uh, arguably the cognizant, authorities to that result, you know, uh, I mean, particularly we had Joey Alcoin on the podcast talking about how the CR was not C, right? It was not comprehensive, you know, and, and uh, this is sort of a bigger, you know, we opened the a- aperture of Dennis's situation to the three and four star level. And in fact, I just used this circumstance or those that fallout as a counter to those who are claiming that NCOs and mid-grade officers get hammered and four stars get off all the time, you know, in the wake of this uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller circumstance. 
Um, so like you say, we need to codify the process or, or make sure it's not each one of these things is a one-off, right? So John, what? help me out here with what how, what is the path forward to make this better? You hit on a good point there that, you know, there's often more to this than just that one person having a bad day. Um, you know, the stresses in command can add up over time. Different people deal with them differently. Um, some may turn to other crutches like alcohol or they may lose sleep or they may have anxiety. Um, I've spoken to some folks who were very much in a state of, uh, uh, of, of mental stress when they were in command. That can manifest itself in different ways, right? Um, and it could be things beyond the ship. And CR points to the op tempo, manpower, manning, things like that. Uh, so certainly the CO, uh, we, we, we hold that accountability, but um, but it's not well defined as to where's the bar, whether, you know, Cordell hits a buoy, there's no damage to the ship. But uh, but certainly the mistake that I made to hit that buoy was no different than the mistake that Dennis made to, to touch the bottom, really, at the end of the day, right? Um, so that's one piece of it. Uh, and then the other piece is... Uh, um, you know, the impact to the individual. And that's where um, what kind of pushed me over the edge to write the article was I saw a lot of folks who just, um, in fact, that broken shower shoes quote is from an officer who, uh, who was relieved of command and kind of described, that's how I feel, right? Um, and then someone sort of criticized the title saying, hey, you can't, uh, uh, you know, you can't assign such an inanimate object to a person. Um, and my point was, I didn't do that. That person assigned that to himself. Uh, and because that's what they felt. And uh, I've talked to some folks who went to some pretty dark places there. Even, you know, uh, the mention of suicide came up. Uh, Captain McVeigh from the Indianapolis took his own life years later um, and wasn't exonerated until an eighth grader took up the cause, right? So um, those feelings are not, uh, I'm not saying that, that everyone, but, you know, that person has a family, that person has kids that have to deal with the, the looking at the newspaper. And so maybe there's a way that, uh, the same safety net that we provide our sailors. You know, NJP is tied to, uh, uh, you know, one of the with financial issues and family issues to suicidal ideations, depression, anxiety. Well, this is essentially the same thing, and uh, um, and then we can't turn our back on those individuals. I, I can't speak Dennis's experience at that time, but uh, but they've often told me that they felt very alone. Um, and, uh, and not necessarily garnering the support of those around them. Although some have been quite different, I have to say. So, you know, not 100%, but the process itself can be, can play out very differently. Dennis? Yeah, from, from my perspective, you know, I was blessed to where I, I ended up for my, my last tour uh, because I had a bunch of surface warfare officers that, that had been in command who and who had major command and you know had similar circumstances that John had, so they understand that you know only by the grace of God go I that you know I didn't have a bad day at sea, and they provided that perspective. They provided me with that support that I needed. So I knew at the individual level that somebody cared about me as a human, but at the organizational level, absolutely not. Yeah, so as you said, Dennis, at the outset, and we all can relate as retired naval officers because the transition is hard, right? You have an identity. There's a lot of unspoken parts of the profession with, you know, your warfare specialty and your ribbon rack and so forth and so on that just evaporates when you transition. And so if you have a bad day at sea, suddenly you're standing as 
you know, a, a leader of sailors and a person on top of his game, as you say, just goes away. And now you walk in the romper room or the island of broken toys, wherever you wind up, and you're kind of hanging your head. And you, even when you run into somebody at, at Lowe's or Home Depot, they kind of give you that unspoken like, oh, yeah, B team, right? And we all know what this is all about. Uh, and, and it's judgment and it's all the other parts of the profession that are, you know, undesirable. You know, it's a it's a game where winning and losing is defined if you choose to play that game in very specific terms, you know. And so um, something in what you're saying about a process that's more humane can assist with that identity piece. Well, it's funny Ward, that you that you say that. And uh, you know, in terms of that judgmental space uh, and that's because we take things so personally, because we're so invested in being the best we can from a professional perspective. And uh, the interesting thing is, we think that people are judging us because we take it so personally. It's because we're judging ourselves. And I could tell you that it wasn't until I actually talked about what happened to me on LinkedIn several years later that many of my Naval Academy classmates found out that it happened. There were so many people in the universe that didn't even know that that happened. So I was in my own little pity prison because I put myself there. And it's all about being more resilient and more self-aware that, well, guess what? I need some support. I need people around me who care and who are going to build me up because that's what I need. And that's, I think, what John talks about. Well, the thing about what John said with the Sea Lord and his quote, what I know to be true is it, it may not, today you became a better naval officer, may or may not be true, but we know life is long. And certainly that day you became a better human being. So now you're more tolerant, you're more forgiving, you're a better little league coach, you're a better father. You know, all of that, uh, you know, if there's justice in the continuum, that's where it may live. But that exceeds the scope of Proceedings Magazine for sure. But I don't, but, uh, so. I don't think it does, Ward. I think that's part of being being an officer, right? It's actually yeah. being a good human. But are, but But is being a good human you know, of value to the machine, right? That That's the point that John's making is we need good humans and it's it would be nice if the process acknowledged that. What you're talking about is a journey that you had to make individually. The Navy may or may not have helped you in the process. This is the same thing about transition because hearing you talk, I, I just think of the identity crisis I went through on transition. You know, there was no roadmap. Yes, you know, we got um, the the transition assistance program dot dot dot, but let's be honest, it's a it's uncharted waters, uh, and that when we realized at that point that in my case the Naval Academy and being in fighter squadrons and so forth didn't help me at all for what was going to happen after all that went away, you know I had to figure it out, and uh, so back to within the lifelines, you know what John is talking about is there's something in this process, like you say you admit you're okay with being relieved of command, but is there something else where that retention for cause can be metered out of the process and we can yield and we can harvest more from good officers that had it one bad day at sea. Yeah, no, I agree. 
And uh, it's funny, you know, Ward, you know, one of the things I talk about very often is change is a fact, right? Things are going to happen. Transition is a choice. And how we transition from whatever, whether it's from service, whether it's whatever it is, that's a choice we get to make. Uh, and, you know, part of that is identifying, you know, what really matters what you want and what you want to do about it and how you define success. And in the case of military service, very often we, we define success by where we are and what we're doing and what our titles are and everything else. So having a process that helps naval officers, military commanding officers in general to say, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. Uh, now that, you know, I need to find my identity again is absolutely something that that would be useful you know Ward and, and bill i think that kind of gets to the final point of uh you know what what happens and what could be learned from this i mean uh generally like you talked about typically what you see is a is sort of a bland announcement that uh, uh investigation occurred and a loss of confidence occurred and, and this person is no longer in command um and then what almost invariably happens is somebody foyers the report and some of the details come out not necessarily in context and not necessarily uh, the whole story, but uh, um, but one version of it with no real chance for counterpoint. Um, and, but at the same time, there's a whole generation of officers. You know, I think back to my time in command, and uh, I like to think back of you know Oscar Austin coming back from a wartime deployment with me up on the bridge, the little hair that I have blowing in the wind and a sunburn and, <laughs> and feeling confident. Um, that's not the same person who took the ship across the Atlantic a week after taking command. Um, and made all kind of mistakes, you know. So what could I have learned from Dennis about what led up to that day? Did he get enough sleep? Did he did he do the, did, were the right people in place? Did, did was there impacts from weather? Were there impacts? Uh, and then most importantly, because all that stuff is kind of in the investigation. But what I want to know is what were you thinking? What was your decision tree that led up to to that decision to station the detail when you did or not station it? Um, to go in, you know, I, when I hit that buoy, I should mention that it was on a foggy day um, heading into New York Harbor uh, with a pier time for Fleet Week, right? And then when I briefed my boss, he was like, well, so you came in under, you know, you were tired, it was dark, it was foggy. All you had to do was ask, and uh, I would have just pushed your pier time till 11 a.m. instead of 8 a.m., you know? And I'm like, holy crap. So, so uh, John, it would have been good to know. You know uh, now you tell me, right? So so imagine if a guy like Dennis, instead of having, and he has done this, I believe, on his own time, so has Kirk Lippold, so have many others, um, gone up and talked to students at SWAS, gone up and shared their story at their own expense, on their own time, um, in a forum where they can actually share that stuff, you know, the Navy leadership courses, uh, places like that, the Naval Academy. Um, instead of, as, as one of the other quotes in the article was, uh, you know, I find myself protecting my, my future and my family from the organization that I love. Um, and you have folks who can't tell that story because it could be used against them. And, uh, and so we'll never know what, what some of those folks were thinking when they made those decisions. Um, you know, what were they doing the night before? What were they thinking? What personal stresses were on them? You know, um, so that's where I think we lose as an organization by wrapping this up in both the secrecy of a safety investigation uh, and a JAG, both of which have a big banner that says, you know, disclosure of this information will result in criminal prosecution. You know, that's enough to scare off anybody. And also putting that person in a position where it's 
they have to choose between their own personal benefit and that of their family um, and the good of the organization. And at the end of the day, I think we're all human and we're going to we're going to make that tough choice and, and, and stay silent. Um, and that's to the detriment, I think, of our of, of those young officers and enlisted folks. They could they could benefit. Well, I mean, that's what the independent forum is for. Right. And, and John, you've walked the walk by using it to good effect, including this article. So the article is in the July 2021 issue of Proceedings. It is called They Are Not Broken Shower Shoes by Captain John Cordell, USN, retired. Our guest also this episode has been Dennis Volpe. Dennis, thank you for telling your story. And uh, thank you guys for being on the Proceedings Podcast today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ward, very much. Okay, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you guys again soon.